Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Happy Easter, everyone. Thank you, uh, praise team, for a uh, beautiful, special music uh, that we could uh, hear. If you followed the... Um, I think it's on Facebook, maybe Instagram too. There were some pictures of the band gathering together, socially distanced, and try to put the music together. And uh, I think I think the singing was digitally compiled. So thank you for uh, all that, uh, as well as um, just all the preparations that the Joyland uh, leaders and families have prepped for our celebration today. And yeah, time together, uh, either in person or uh, virtually. Pray that um, this will be, uh, along with the weather, uh, kind of a, a bright, uh, kind of restart, a sense of renewal uh, uh, in the Lord. Um, we're concluding today the five or so messages uh, on the uh, so-called servant songs uh, found in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the songs many scholars um, uh, believe refer to uh, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, they detail his mission, his calling, frustration, determination, and suffering. Knowing what we know about uh, what Jesus did uh, on Good Friday, uh, the correspondence between the servant song prophecies and the actual life of the uh, Lord Jesus Christ is remarkable. Uh, so by way of review, uh, here's a listing of the messages, passages we've covered, as well as the sermon titles assigned to them. So in mid-March, we looked at chapter 42 about the just uh, justice um, uh, mission of proclaiming justice, of restoring justice that Jesus, uh, that the servant would, would set out. And his manter, manner of gentleness, of how he would do it um, without breaking uh, a bruised reed, without snuffing out a smoldering wick. And then the following week, we did uh, stages of, of his ministry, from his calling to his uh, public um, manifestation, right, his display, and then frustration, and then renewal, and then expansion. From chapter 49, chapter 50, we talked about how uh, he knew what was he was about to face, that it would not be an easy task. And so with that sense of predetermination, he you know, persevered. He was determined to see the Lord's mission uh, all the way through. Uh, even to suffering, right? And then we saw the extent of the suffering uh, on Good Friday when we looked at uh, the end of 52 and the bulk of 53. Not what we thought, right? The main theme I tried to share there was appearances versus reality. 
We're good at judging appearances. We look at somebody, we look at a situation, and we think we know. Now, when the people saw Jesus, right, saw the servant, they thought, man, this guy's messed up. This guy's a loser. This guy has got nothing going for him. Look at how disfigured he is. Look how much sorrow he's experiencing. God is not blessing him. God's cursing him. That was the foregone conclusion. But it turns out that Jesus' suffering was vicarious. It was done on somebody's behalf. Whose behalf was it? The people. And we also learn that it was for us. It's not what we thought is the opposite. It wasn't him. It was us for whom he suffered. Uh, Today's servant song um, is actually the end of chapter 53, which is still the fourth song. And since it had allusions to the resurrection, I thought we'd focus on these uh, three short verses for this Easter uh, sermon. Uh, I titled the message uh, as such uh, because in music, uh, coda, right, which means apparently means tail in Italian, right, uh, represents the end of a composition, uh, which brings it to a satisfactory close. So I've never used the word coda in my life, but it popped up here in our sermon title. So this final stanza of the poem answers many of the questions that have been raised thus far. What is the meaning of this innocence, submissive suffering in the place of sinners? Why is he doing it and how can he do it? Is it all an accident of history? Uh, verse 10 tells us emphatically that it was the Lord's will to crush him. The servant's story is not a tragic coincidence, a, a good person in the wrong place at the wrong time. His purpose in living and dying was that through him, people might have their sins atoned for and come to know the righteousness of God. Uh, the servant's suffering was not a meaningless happenstance or one of a long list of miscarriages of justice. God wanted this to happen. And in some ways, that's the worst answer of them all, isn't it? What could be worth God intentionally crushing his faithful servant? Now, the usual apologetic that is offered is that uh, there's a greater good being accomplished. Yes, it was sad. Yes, it was painful that the servant was decimated in this way. But a greater good was being accomplished, it's argued. By itself, I find that to be somewhat deficient. Um, But uh, coupled with the revelation of resurrection, in other words, there's more than what meets the eye. Uh, I find the argument a little more helpful. Uh, The greater good was something uh, kind of dimensionally different, if you will. Uh, It was that human sin would be completely paid for in full. That was never understood, that was never envisioned, that could not even be comprehended, I think, by the people at that time, even by us, many a thousand, a couple, two thousand years later. But that's exactly what took place. Um, In fact, through his resurrection, Jesus uh, conquered. He put to death, death. I like saying that. I said that several times. He put to death, death. So the servant was not merely suffering as a result of his people's sins, nor was he merely suffering with his people. He was suffering for their sins so that the penalty of sin could be fully atoned for. Eternal life was the outcome. Death's power was permanently broken. 
Um, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, a fate worse than death? A fate worse than death. Uh, if something is unpleasant or undesirable to a rather large degree, uh, we sometimes express our dismay by saying that death would have been better, death would have been preferred. Now, um, if we could ask anyone who actually had the choice of death or something else, the worst fate, uh, we and actually went through, we might be able to verify whether the, the sentiment is true. Uh, interestingly, Jesus would be the only candidate who could tell us whether what he went through was better or worse than death. Actually, what he went through was death. It led to death. So you got the worst of both worlds. But only he, right? came out of death. Only he made it through death. Yeah. So the, the fate that he experienced actually was both death, worse than death, and better than death. All these things, right? Because Jesus went from abject uh, humiliation to the highest possible apotheosis. Yeah. Now, in our passage, the servant uh, passes through death into an exalted state. The servant would live to see again. Uh, the work that see see to live again and see that his work was not in vain, but remarkably successful. You know what seemed to have ended in ignominious agony burst forth into an unprecedented celebration of victory and honor. Uh, our verses today uh, present a rather bountiful picture of the servant's final outcome, and the tenor of the three verses indicate a sense of reward, or inheritance, or even legacy. So it's around this theme of reward, then, that I would like to structure the rest of my sermon, my message. So um, using the actual language of the verses, and not necessarily in sequential order, but grouped more thematically, here's my uh, rendering of the various benefits, outcomes, rewards a servant will receive and experience. So the first one is the light of life. He's going to live again. His days are going to be prolonged. In fact, it's never going to end. He's going to live forever. The second grouping would be uh, offspring, whatever that may mean. He's going to see his offspring. Um, there's also the idea of he's going to see his offspring and be satisfied. All that he has done is going to feel justified, right? worth it to the servant. And then the justified many, right? the ones that were justified by his work, made righteous with God. Those are all kind of, you know, categorized together. And then the third and final uh, grouping would be uh, this idea of portion. Like he gets part of the plunder, the, 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 what's collected by the conqueror, by the victor. He's going to experience the spoils, right? He's going to divide. Um, he's going to have a, what does it say? a portion among the great and divide the spoils uh, with the strong. Um, so we're going to look at each type of reward and consider how it uh, fittingly concludes um, this entire set of uh, servant songs. Okay, so number one, light of life um, and prolonged days. The servant's death, as conclusive as it was, uh, in actuality was not the end. It ushered in a new era. Uh, death was real and full, but it was not final. No longer would death reign, but, would, but life would uh, prevail. Now, although Isaiah 53 admittedly doesn't use the word um, resurrection or raising explicitly, there's definitely an epilogue, right? This 
these last three verses an epilogue, uh, an, an unending one uh, at that. The servant would see the light of life once again. Whatever darkness he had to endure, it could not permanently extinguish the servant's light. He would emerge from this dark tunnel uh, into light once again. And that new life would not be some shadowy existence like that of Hades, as the people of the day thought of the afterlife. No, it would be a full, uh, abundant, vibrant uh, uh, life as we experience life right now. Um, it would actually even be a better life, right, if we recall the special features of Jesus' resurrected body. Uh, similarly, the phrase prolong his days uh, indicate that the end of the servant's earthly life would not be this abrupt terminus of his existence. Indeed, his days would be extended uh, forever, turns out. Uh, you know, the, today the reality of our own finitude, that our days are limited, that certainly has been reinforced um, by the death toll due to the pandemic. I was just checking the numbers last night, 550,000 550, uh, deaths in the United States. Yeah, uh, in the course of a little over a year, 550,000 people died due to COVID. Um, the worldwide number is uh, 2.84 million. Yeah. I mean, with technology, with scientific advances, with enlightenment weren't we supposed to avoid you know these kind of mass mass uh, massive um, death tolls yeah uh, the light of life uh, the, the easter message the light of life is still to me so relevant and uh, ever welcome um, in our scientifically dominated age uh, the various types of darkness that you may be going through, medical, societal, political, economic, relational, spiritual, right? Uh, these continue to enshroud us. And no matter how smart we get, no matter how rich we get, no matter how powerful we get, I think they'll always plague us. So we need a light that will truly shine in uh, the darkness, right? All darknesses, no matter what they are. Um, this servant experienced uh, this relighting. Even death could not preclude him from witnessing uh, the light of life once uh, again. You know, there's something in the human spirit that uh, longs for this kind of you know, survival, this kind of longevity. And for example, um, the fairy tale ending, and they lived happily ever after. We know this is not true. We know this never happens, but it resonates with us. We want to believe it. Even if everything in life militates against his veracity, like we know that romances, they don't last uh, that long, certainly uh, hard, rarely forever, but we wish that they did. Right? Most stories, poems, tales, they come to a definite end because their characters or the figures within the piece are themselves finite. So we need, right, in God's story, as expressed in the servant songs, uh, this fairy tale ending actually happens. The protagonist does not die. Well, actually, our hero servant does die, tragically, you might add, but miracle of miracles, he lives again. His days are prolonged. The story 
goes on. Hope lives. Uh, the light of life uh, will persist in the servant in Jesus Christ. He gives us a glimpse of what so serving the sovereign Lord might result in uh, for us. And, and it's this, this theme, this, mm, this declaration, this uh, value, this faith, statement of faith has characterized Christians you know, through time since it, it was, since the resurrection happened, right? You know, Second Timothy, for example, says that Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that's our hope. That's our conviction. Right? That is our, our own uh, future. That's the path that Jesus has blazed uh, for us. Okay, uh, second, the next uh, reward promised to the servant uh, that I want us to consider is what it says in verse 10, uh, referred to as his offspring. You know, he'll see his offspring. Um, even though the earthly life of the servant comes to an end, uh, he will somehow see his offspring. Offspring, sorry, offspring. Um, what does that mean? I think we have to think about that a little bit. Now, in the Old Testament, um, the blessing of God was often, um, it, it kind of de was depicted uh, via visible blessings received or accrued in life. Particularly, the number of offspring that you had or the amount of material wealth uh, you possessed, these reflected. The more you had of either, it reflected God's blessing upon your life. Uh, so for this servant um, who would end his life prematurely, without much opportunity to have any descendants to speak of, uh, nor uh, any wealth uh, to his name, considering how despised and rejected he was in death. Uh, these would be construed as his having an accursed life, not a blessed life. Uh, this is very surprising that Isaiah prophesied that this servant would have a legacy, uh, would have a legacy at all, uh, especially in terms of offspring, that this would reflect the favor of God upon his life. So what I think it means by offspring here, it's probably best understood in, 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 in a spiritual sense, right? In terms of a legacy or the product of his labors uh, rather than a strict biological progeny. So I kind of lumped it, as you saw, uh, this phrase with uh, my righteous servant will justify many. There's a reference to descendants you know, earlier in, in the chapter. So this is kind of a similar idea. Um, you could also maybe throw in the phrase, the will of the Lord will prosper uh, in his hand. So these are all kind of talking about those who uh, are Jesus's or the servant's children, right, his offspring, you know, due to the labor of love, the work, the sacrifice, the atoning work of the servant. In other words, all believers uh, in Christ can be considered the servant's offspring or descendants. All of us who experience atonement or salvation through his substitutionary offering that he made belong to his lineage. Everyone has experienced new life uh, because of what he has done um, will fellowship with him into eternity. Uh, because he bore our iniquities and poured out his life unto death, the servant was able to justify many. He made countless sinners righteous before God. You know, no single person could ever make herself righteous on her own merits, let alone justify anybody else. But this servant, right, 
he was able through his incredible scope and potency of his atoning work uh, justify many. So his life was far from being futile. In fact, it was the most fruitful life ever lived. Far from being childless, he will have children from every race on this earth and every time period. This is the success that was promised to the servant in all the previous servant songs. Far from being cursed by God, this man would be the very means of the Lord's promises of reconciliation coming true. Remember that term? Uh, he's like a tender shoot. This thin little shoot proved to be the powerful arm of the Lord for which the people had been waiting expectantly. And what um, might prove to be the favorite part of this text for me is what is said in verse 11, that the servant would be satisfied. Uh, by what he had accomplished, right? uh, satisfaction. I think that, to me, that's a very kind of important term, right? When we're trying to figure out how to expend our, our time, our energy, our efforts, our, our, our ideas, our creativity, you know, our money, whatever. You want to be satisfied. You want to feel like you're, what you're doing, your investment uh, is worthwhile. If it's empty or if it's based on false pretenses, if something's wrong with it, and, and you feel like you, you feel regretful at the end, that to me, that's a horrible feeling. So it's important to me that in, in all this sense of reward, satisfaction, the servant experiences um, satisfaction. And, and that's what the text tells us, that he would look upon all that he did, did and find deep delight. The sense that he had labored for what had, all that he had labored for had not been in vain, that's gone. That, 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 Worry is, is now uh, dissipated um, when he sees his people accept his sacrifice on their behalves. He can breathe a deep sigh of satisfaction. And there's a fullness, there's a perfection uh, to it. Uh, from the servant's perspective, his reaction for people making him their guilt offering will be that will be one of uh, of one who's just finished laboring or toiling a long time, but successfully. The fruition of his offering can be seen in redeemed lives. Despite the stringent cost, he will see and be satisfied because of the blessed outcome of his experience. Uh, it will have felt worth it uh, for the servant. I try to think of some kind of real, you know, more modern examples of, of maybe this, uh, of people who have endured a lot, but at the end of their lives, or maybe during their lives, are able to look back and see that all of their struggles and, 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 and efforts um, was worthwhile, that they were satisfied. So, you know, Women's History Month was March, right? And uh, so people like, you know, Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg, Certainly, uh, she would have been a great example. Um, I went with Marie Curie, Madame Curie, right? Um, so she was the first woman uh, scientist to win a Nobel Prize in physics, right, for uh, discovery of like radioactivity. Um, she's actually the only woman to win um, the Nobel Prize twice. She won it in chemistry later on for the discovery of polonium and radium. She's the only person 
to have, to have, win, to have won, uh, rare to have won two, but the only other person along with Linus Pauling to win in two different scientific uh, fields, right? She's the first woman a professor at the University of Paris. And as you, you know, may know, she had to fight through a lot of prejudice, a lot of bias, a lot of closed doors, right? Education opportunities weren't there, financial hardships, um, there's one occasion where she was already famous, but she's not allowed to speak uh, at a, uh, uh, to give a, a speech on uh, lectures at a, a London, in London at an institution. Her husband was invited, right? But she wasn't. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people, I heard that the first Nobel Prize, they were just going to give it to her because they co-worked on it. She's just going to give it to her husband and her husband said, no way, I'm not going to take it without her because she did all the work. She was really the, I think, the bigger brains uh, behind all this. But not only in the area of, of women's rights, but uh, apparently she received a lot of xenophobia, right? Um, and just a lot of obstacles, a lot of difficulties. But she persevered, right? She didn't let this stop her. She gave her all, like uh, she's famous also for during World War I, mobilizing a lot of uh, radiological units for the, the medical aspect of it right and apparently she wanted to like donate her nobel prize to try to get raise money for the war effort right she all the money that she received apparently she tried to share it with other scientists she didn't patent any of of her scientific discoveries because she didn't want it to slow down any progress or any any research into it right and of course you know she had a high levels of you know physical radio radioactive contamination because all the work that she uh, spent with it. Right? I don't know if she ever like wrote or thought about it, didn't get a chance to re do enough research. If she surveyed her work at a certain time and said, you know, that was worthwhile, I'm satisfied with all that I've done. But I think just by all the way to the end of her life, she worked and worked and worked to really advance so many different fields, not only scientifically, but in, in human society. So I thought, you know, she uh, in her own way, right, kind of, um, she had this sense of the offspring, a sense of, uh, of a legacy, right, a sense of satisfaction. Uh, the servant, um, he was rewarded with this because of the, the, uh, the ginormous scope right, of all the people. And you and I are part of that offspring, are we not? Okay, to finish up our message, uh, let's uh, move on to the final uh, reward uh, or the category due to the servant uh, from what our text refers to as portion or spoils. Okay, the language is quite military in nature. Um, verse 12 talks about the aftermath of a battle. Uh, normally, uh, the victor in a conflict gets a portion or a percentage of the defeated armies or people's possessions. This was a customary recompense to a conqueror. Now, if you're on the losing side, obviously no reward. Uh, and the suffering servant, uh, he was actually numbered with the transgressors, with the rebels. Uh, and he died as a guilty one. So, like I said, he's, he should be considered to be on the loser side. Uh, any contemporary observer who uh, maybe saw cross, Christ die uh, would have like listened with uh, astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified Jesus was actually a conqueror. Yeah. But if you 
really think about it, uh, the cross and then the grave, they're not ultimately events of loss and failure. And I was trying to make this um, point during the Good Friday message uh, a couple days ago, but not sure that I did it very well. You know, actually was on the second day of my first COVID vaccine dose. The, wasn't really concentrating as much as I had hoped for. Anyway, um, yeah, the grave probably appeared to be a great defeat, right? a cataclysmic ending to this movement by Jesus. But theologically speaking, right, and I think Isaiah is, is pointing to this, um, the cross itself was a triumph. What appeared to be a defeat was indeed a great victory. What looked like the end turned out to be the dawn of a new world. Uh, and that's the power. That's the subversive power uh, of the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God does not come first in visible power and strength. It came as a little child born in an obscure backwater to simple parents. The kingdom grew in the hearts of a few disciples, but didn't get very far. And it apparently came to a crashing um, destruction on a Roman crucifix. Something else, however, was at work. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, Christ in the process uh, crushed the serpent's head. The victim became the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he lifts up, he, from which he is lifted up and rules the world. Uh, somebody wrote. So Jesus was not the defeated, but the triumphant. On the cross. So let's not regard the cross as a defeat and only the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection was a victory endorsed slash proclaimed slash demonstrated slash revealed. Yeah, so in terms of reputation and glory, the servant would receive all the accolades, all the recognition, all the bounty that a truly vanquishing hero conqueror would enjoy, a victory parade, if you will. Um, this honor belonged to none other than this servant of the Lord, the one who had greatly been despised, horribly been disfigured, and suffered at the hands of those who thought themselves great, but were really petty and small. So this twisted, forgotten, broken man will one day wear the victor's crown at his exaltation. Uh, life and glory would emanate and pour forth from him. I think there's uh, many stories in life about people who were not appreciated during their uh, years, but then posthumously, right, people recognize their genius. They recognize how great their accomplishments uh, were. Right? Um, one example, um, since... Uh, you know, these, these are servant songs, we've been calling them, because, you know, a lot of Isaiah is written in, uh, pro, in, in, in poetic form. Um, so I thought it'd be semi-cool to try to find an illustration from music, not that I know anything about it, uh, like Coda. That's the first time I've used that uh, in, in a title. Um, but, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach, the German composer, right? He died in 1750. And his achievements were quite underappreciated while he was uh, alive. It took about 100 years uh, for people to uh, recognize what a genius composer uh, he really was. And this is finally when he got his due. 
in his own time, Bach was uh, highly regarded among his uh, small circle of colleagues, but for his uh, virtue, uh, virtuosic um, qualities or abilities as an organist, like everyone recognized that he had that skill, but nobody paid attention to his compositions. Um, he did receive some public recognition, like he got, uh, he was given the title of court composer by King Augustus III, but he underwent um, humiliations as well. Like there was a period of time in Leipzig where um, he was kind of denied things, he overlooked, he was kind of limited to what he could do, uh, much to his, uh, I think, embarrassment and chagrin. But after his death, um, things didn't work out that well either. Initially, his reputation uh, as a composer <laughs> continued to decline. Yeah, his work was regarded as old fashioned compared to the emerging styles of the day. But then in the mid 1800s, uh, people, you know, some famous composers themselves, um, they began to recognize um, his abilities as a composer. And they began to uh, show uh, how some of what he did was actually ahead of the time. And uh, now, right, I don't know, depending on your <laughs> Uh, your uh, particular uh, views of, of classical music, uh, he's considered as one of the great ones right? uh, throughout all time, but um, he's not around. He wasn't around to enjoy it. And unlike our servant of the Lord, uh, we don't know exactly if he actually got to experience the, uh, yeah, the recognition that people uh, are saying that he uh, deserved. Right? Uh, for our servant, yeah, God did not, God will not um, miss out on exalting him and giving him the glory that is due him for his faithful uh, obedience, right, for his service. Right? Um, so this song, it's bookended by, uh, this, this fourth song is bookended by references to this kind of exaltation. Back in 53, uh, the end of, of uh, in the 52, it says that the servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So we're told in the beginning that there's something special about him. And this term, lifted up, highly exalted, there's only a few other references in the book of Isaiah, and they all refer to God directly. So basically, there's this kind of unity with God that no one else, no other description is given. And then at the end of 53, it says that he will, like we said, devoid the divide the spoils of the strong, get a portion among the great. It's, it's a great liter, literary device that um, Isaiah is using. Uh, he suggests that there's victory ahead, but then the success comes through this very painful humiliation and death. And, and, and a reader might despair, like, how can this ever recover from this? But in the coda, we learn that the servant's resurrection brings us back to this idea of exaltation, uh, where for all the people to see, for all the people, his offspring, to enjoy the spoils of the conquest. Uh, that's the journey of the uh, servant of the Lord. Um, he was called from before birth, trained in strict discipline, commissioned to bring about justice, uh, though gentle in manner and displayed in splendor, he encountered disappointment, 
opposition, persecution, and then violence. Yet he persevered, knowing that God had worldwide salvation through him in mind. Even when the breath of life ebbed from his body, he did not open his mouth to defend himself. No, he had to see this through, though he died with criminals and was buried uh, in an expensive grave, he saw the light of life once again, never to be extinguished. He presides now over countless offspring, beneficiaries of his ultimate sacrifice. Glory and power and honor to the risen Savior. Let us bless and worship the servant of the Lord. Join me in a time of reflection and prayer.